Welcome to A Better HR Business, the podcast that looks at how HR consultants and HR tech firms grow their businesses and how they help their employers to get the best out of their people. Remember, for show notes and downloads, go to www.getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. That's getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. Okay, let's get started. Hello and welcome to today's show. Nice to have you along. I'm delighted to be joined today by a fascinating employee engagement expert, Skip Weissman. Skip, thank you very much for joining me. Great to have you along. Yeah, no, thanks for thanks for finding me on uh, through the magic of the interwebs. <laughs> Isn't it? It's amazing. You're in a, the fine city of New York, is that right? Uh, actually, just north a... of New York City, about 70 miles, in a oh, okay. city called Poughkeepsie, New York. Oh, well. So folks listening in, as I said, Skip is a fascinating guy. We're going to dive into this, the, the history and what he does and so on. But to start with, to give you some context, since 2002, Skip has been helping business owners and CEOs in the manufacturing and HVAC industries, typically with 10 to 100 employees and with 1 million to 10 million in revenue, changing good but mediocre stagnant employees into high-performing teams that think, act and feel like business owners that make decisions and take action in the best interest of their company. This leads to highly productive companies within 90 days or less and 25 to 50% increase in revenue and profits within 12 to 18 months. Skip, I absolutely love the clarity of of your offer and the service you're providing. I want to dive back in a minute, but firstly, can I start with that? How did you come up with such clarity? Because I think people struggle with defining their services and their products. A lot of self-reflection, a lot of uh, being drilled by a a couple other marketing and branding coaches (laughs) (laughs) who wouldn't wouldn't let me off the hook. But... (laughs) It's really been been a lot of reflection looking at my best clients and 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 the results that we've gotten for them um and it's been actually very rewarding to look at that and say yeah wow we actually did did some really great work together and you know it's it's nothing that i it's nothing that i do to anybody it's it's, it's the partnership um with uh, some business owners who are open to being uh, humble and vulnerable and knowing that they can do better and look for ways to do it I like that. I remember reading the book, um, was it First Break All the Rules, the Gallup organization or the Marcus Buckingham and all that sort of thing. And yes. they were talking about you get an employee survey and you average out the ratings and the scores and then you go and take actions. And the findings of that book was saying, well, let's try and find the best performers, the top performers and model them. So I love the way you've taken your top returns on investment, the best client projects you've done and narrowed in from that perspective. Did that help? Yeah. And the other thing that that I always fall back on is my, my previous career. It is all related because I spent 20 years in professional sports and, and baseball in the United States in particular. And um, I try to use the metaphor of success on the athletic field for success in business. I believe there's a lot of similarities and you can't win a championship unless you're going to be very humble and know that you've got to keep getting better. Right. Yeah. And uh, that's just the, the mindset I bring to business and that you're doing great, but what's that next level? It's great. You had a winning season. You may be in the playoffs, but to get that championship level, you've got to get even better. And that's, that's what I bring to the business yeah. world. Brilliant. I like that. So can you describe your sporting history? Cause it's such uh, an, <laughs> an, a fascinating area. It is. Uh, because I look, I'm an Australian. So, I don't, I have not had a, a grounding in baseball, but it's it is a cool sport. Yeah, you know, I had a client a couple of years ago in, in New Zealand, and I started with that. Whenever I talk to a prospect or a client, I ask him, "What's what's your what's your championship game? You know, what what's your national sport or your favorite sport?" New and Zealand. New Zealand is rugby. Yeah, 
right? Um, and the All Blacks. And and so they said, so so if you were them, what would your championship game be, right? And and so that concept resonates no matter where you're at. If you have any, you know, any affinity yeah. for for sports. So, but baseball, you know, was my childhood passion growing up. I mean, I was seven years old when I went to my first major league baseball game in New York City, and I just got hooked. And you know, like many other young boys who try to be professional athletes, I learned at a very early age that was not going to be my my future. <laughs> and so I had to do something to you know stay close to the game as a career. And so I got my master's degree in communica- in, in uh, sports management after a bachelor's in communication and did an internship with a baseball team and just kept rolling along. I was in the right place at the right time when I was 26 years old and was named CEO of my first small business, which was a minor league baseball team wow. in North Carolina. And then I spent the next 16 years doing that. And then I got bored and burnt out on um, having my summers dictated by the baseball calendar and travel. It was time to do something else. Yeah. It was, it was, it was time to move on. It was fun for, for a long time, 20 years, yeah. um, but it was time to do something different and see if I could make my way in another endeavor. And so, can you still love the sport when you're the CEO of a, of a team? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, if, if you don't, the, the hours are too long yeah, and the right. commitment's too long. The lifestyle is too overwhelming. If you don't really love it. And if you're not a fan of the game uh, and that's what happened to me around my 17th or 18th season, I, I just stopped being a real passionate fan of the game. And so it was, it was time to move on. Cause I was spending 14, 16 hour days at the ballpark from April till you know, September, October. So yeah, got it. that gets old fast. Got it. <laughs> Speaking of getting old, uh, when you walk around Ireland, as I do with an Australian accent, pretty much the first mm-hmm. thing people say, oh, are you Australian? Are you? Or New Zealander, which, you know, hurts me. And you've already mentioned the All Blacks, which is <laughs> a terrible start. But anyway, but, do you get, you know, oh, you're in baseball. So what did you think of Moneyball? Uh, you know, uh, I love the concept. You know, I thought uh, anything, <laughs> anything anybody can do to, uh, to bridge the gap, to get the edge in, in some way and, and, and leverage things, you know, it's all about leverage and being able to find the difference that makes a difference. And, you know, I guess a lot of sports are this way, but baseball, maybe even more so these, they're really stuck. They're worse stuck in the old, old mindset, old way of doing things. Um, technology was not part of their, you know, their approach. And so, uh, you know, what uh, what Billy Bean did to turn things upside down and, and really change the, change the face of the game. Now analytics is everything, right? And, and, yeah. and every team has their analytics department or whatever. So you change the face of the game. And I think it's, it's fascinating. I think at some point it's a little overdone as far as the analytics. And the, yeah. the, 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 you still have the human factor that uh, I think, you know, doesn't get uh, taken into consideration enough, right? You know, I, I must sound like my grandfather now, you know, like back in my day, you know, um, but I love, you know, I don't know how much you know about baseball, but I love pitchers goals. I love starting pitchers that go the distance. They, they pitch seven, eight, nine innings. And that's the expectation. Now you're lucky if you get five innings out of a pitcher and then you got the whole, whole realm of the, the, the rest of the relief pitchers coming in. Every, everybody's got their minute little role, you know, that to, to fill. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the game's, different than it was back back in my day <laughs> like, uh, but yeah that's, uh, so i know i'm supposed to be talking hr business but is that to manage injury yeah. why, why do they pull them off early 
it's it's a combination of that. I think they're they're I, I do think they're pampering the uh-huh. pitchers, um, and I think historic, historically, if you look at injuries, I think there's more arm injuries now than there ever were. I mean, some of the greats of all time in the 70s and 80s and um, 90s, you know, they threw a ton of innings and they had less injuries. So I do think they're babying them and they're pampering them. Um, and they want the freshest arm to come in and throw as hard as you can for a short amount of time. Nonstop. And then, yeah. and then, and then move on and they just churn through. Um, so different philosophy, different uh, different game today, but. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was interesting here you talk about making uh, improvements, small improvements and and. I'm always mindful of when companies I don't know, do some sort of employee engagement activities, like they might do the annual retreats and things like that. Mm-hmm. And other companies look at that and go, oh, that's what these top companies do. They have an annual retreat. We should do that. But it's very hard to copy a system, a program. It's not just about the visible factors. So I guess some of that probably caught your eye when you were making the transition out of baseball into the consulting world. What led you into the field, into consulting and helping businesses? It was a whole self-reflection thing. Okay. You know, after being in a certain industry and doing what I did for 20 years, it's like, you, know, you kind of figure out well, what's my value? What can I do? You know, what's transferable? What are my transferable skills? Yeah. And what I realized is running a minor league baseball team is no different than running a small business. I mean, my largest full-time year-round staff was like 15 people, you know, and we were a three, three and a half million dollar business. So that's just like every other, you know, many other small manufacturing or HVAC companies or insurance agencies or something like that. And so I, I realized, you know, all I was doing was running a small business with a staff of people. It just happened to be in a very unique industry that had, yeah. that was seasonal, let's say. Right. And so I just looked at that and I said, you know, maybe I could help other small businesses run their business more effectively, you know, about the same size. And so, you know, I, I just saw that I was, I was just in a unique industry, but I was running a small business just like anybody else uh, in our community. And, and so I just said, you know, let me try and, uh, see what the issues are, what the challenges are. Um, you know, I was able to create some pretty good uh, work environments. Uh, you know, you have to have good morale when you're working 14, 16 hours a day for 10, 15 days in a row, nonstop. Um, yeah. and, and so I was able to make that happen with a lot of help from some really key staff members that, that taught me an awful lot. I have a couple of lessons that my staff taught me the hard way when I was the hard driving <laughs> uh, lack of compassionate leader who just wanted to get stuff done. Right. I remember I had, we had this long homestand. We probably, you know, if the team is out of town, we can take some time off. Usually it's on the weekend. So, uh, so if we work, we'll work, you know, we have home games all week uh, and then we have weekend home games. So we're working all weekend, all weekend. And then we get, the team goes on the road for, for a couple of days midweek, but we're still working regular business hours. So this happened for like three with 21 days in a row. And finally, my number two guy came in and said, you know, Skip, we, we, we've worked like 20 days in a row, nonstop. Um, you, you think next week we could kind of rotate a couple of days off since the team's on the road? <laughs> thanks, Steve. I, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Novel thanks, approach. Thanks for, yeah. Re, thanks for recalibrating. Uh, but yeah, you know, you have to be open and humble and, and, and listen yeah. to your staff sometimes like that. And I wish I had, I had thought of it, you know? Oh man. I remember the first leadership role I got where I was leading te- a team and I thought, wow, this is a lot harder than the textbooks I used to read. 
<laughs> so I know what you mean. So tell us about your business. What do you actually do? What do I do? I work with business owners to really break down, break through, I'd say, the, the communication challenges in a work environment. One of my core tenets is that any success, any failure, or any frustration that we experience in life is directly related to some type of communication. And if you go into a work environment, and you've probably done this yourself, Ben, where you just ask what what are things that need to improve around here, right? Communication is always at the top of the list. Yeah. One, two, or three. It's never below three, I don't think. But rarely does it ever improve. And it's like Groundhog Day conversations. We're always talking about the same stuff over and over again. Nothing changes. And that's where people really get frustrated. That's where morale falls down. And so I just start that conversation with business owners saying, so tell me about communication in your work environment. What's, what are your frustrations? What are your challenges? And that opens up a, a Pandora's box of conversation. We could talk for hours on that. Um, and then we just start chipping away and say, okay, let's, let's find out what the cause is. And, and then we'll start you know, working through this stuff. Um, but that's really where it has to, the conversation has to start with communication. And then, then we start applying it to different contexts of the business that, you know, we want to try and make, make better. Absolutely. Well, it starts there. Yeah. And I know you bottled up your knowledge, your wisdom, your advice into a book, The Seven Deadliest Communication Sins. What was the purpose of the book and what's within that book? You know, just like I said earlier, uh, it all came from my client work, you know, just seeing patterns consistently with, with what was happening in a work environment. My very first client, I, I started my business, as you said, in 2002, but that was, I had a, a different focus the first four or five years. I was doing actually performance coaching with uh, insurance producers and financial advisors for focus and accountability and goal setting. And about four or five years in, one of my clients referred me to a small business owner who was struggling with a work environment. It was a pretty toxic work environment. Employees were yelling at each other in the hallways. Um, and I said, you know, I think I can help you, but I've never done this work before. But let's try and work through this together. And the guy took a chance on me. And after about three or four months, we were able to change the work environment. And we didn't have to let anybody go. Uh, all the same employees just stepped up and changed the way they were looking at things. And what I realized at the end of that project, after about six months, was the issue was just communication in a number of different contexts. And then, you know, my next client project, same thing, right? I'm just saying, boy, there's these consistent patterns of communication that are getting in the way. And so it came out of that. That was the genesis of it. And it really started with one thing uh, that I call a lack of specificity. And people are very vague in their uh, approach to communication. Uh, sometimes it's malicious, but 99% of the time, it's just lazy communication habits. And it's as simple as as soon as possible. Right? Uh, yeah, I ask you to do something for me and I just say, well, Ben, whenever you can get to it. But I don't really mean that. I'm just trying to be nice. And then you have to, then I come back to you three days later. Hey, did you do that yet? Well, no, you said whenever I can get to it. Well, yeah. You know, <laughs> and all those little things just chip away at the trust and respect in the work environment. So these things built up. And so that was the first thing I saw. And then over probably four or five years, I just said, I just kept, you know, logging this stuff. And I had all this laundry list of communication issues uh, that I was tracking and I just categorized them. 
you know, and, and started putting them in, in little areas. And I came up with the seven biggest ones that are the biggest problems. I have three primary and then four sort of secondary that are more personal one-on-one, but there's three that are really usually global in an organization that really mm-hmm. causes the biggest problems. And specificity is one. The second is a lack of directness and candor. Yeah. And that's, that's where people aren't saying what needs to be said uh, when it needs to be said. And then the third is uh, a lack of immediacy, urgency, and promptness, which is where we're putting off saying what needs to be said, right? Um, because it's difficult because we don't want to be direct and candid <laughs> with people where we're afraid of that. So those three work together. I call them the three primary communication sins that cause your biggest problems. Um, and if you just work in those three areas, um, you can turn around your work environment overnight. Um, really? Like the biggest bang for your buck in those three? Wow. And specificity, if you could only do one, just start working on specificity. It'll transform your, uh, the way people respond to you. Is that the classic smart goal stuff? Um, specific time uh, yeah. <laughs> measurable. Yeah, but yeah, from, yeah, it's actually, it's included in the, in the smart goal, but it's, it's totally separate. It's just the power of specificity is just taken for granted. People don't really understand how powerful it is. And we avoid it. Because, well, I don't want to be held accountable to something if I'm, you know, if I'm specific or I don't want to come across as too forceful or, you know, uh, egregious on you, setting expectations for you. I want to be nice, nice guy. I want to be liked. So I'm not going to put too much pressure on you. Um, But at the end of the day, it ends up, you know, causing some negative feelings because expectations aren't met. Uh, so most of the time it's not malicious. It's just lazy communication habits. Um, and nobody's ever pushed us back on it. And the other thing is that there's many times people will get a direction from somebody that's nonspecific and we know it's nonspecific and we know we don't have the information we need to respond based on the other person's expectations, but we don't ask for more information. Because, well, we assume they think I should know what they mean. And if I ask, that's going to make me look bad. And they're not going to think well of me. So I just take it and go to try to figure it out on my own. And that just causes all sorts of stress. And we miss the expectations anyway. And instead of saying, well, Ben, I know you asked for this. And you're kind of vague on when you want it. Give me a, give me a sense for when you actually need this so I can prioritize it for you. You know, and you just ask for more information. Uh, so many people, when I do my seminars and workshops on this, they're just blown away by how, I mean, this is, this is not rocket science. It's pretty simple. Um, but they all, most everybody agrees in the programs. They just nod their head. Yeah, I, I do that all the time. I just accept other people's lack of specificity. Um, right. which so causes two, it is a two-way problem. street though, isn't it? Yeah. With giving the direction and then not asking for clarification on that. Yep, and that causes... If you just fix that, you'll 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 transform your productivity fifty percent overnight. That is interesting. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. amazing. It really is. Wow. What was the third one? Directness. And, second is lack of directness and candor, and that's you know not saying what needs to be said. The elephants in the room, the three thousand pound gorillas in the room, mm-hmm. that everybody's dancing around and not talking about. And the third is uh, lack of immediacy, urgency, and promptness, and that has a number of different connotations. Some is just is procrastination. Right? We're putting things off because they're uncomfortable conversations. Um, but sometimes it's just that we don't have the information that somebody requested of us. 
Um, and you know, there's no sense for me getting back to you, Ben, until I have everything you asked of me. And so I just put it on the back burner and I try to bring it to the top of my priority list and I'll get it to you when I can, because that's what you said. Get it to me when you can. Yeah. In the meantime, you're wondering and hoping, well, is this even on Skip's calendar? Whatever happened? I haven't heard back in 10 days and I thought I'd have a, I'd hear back in a few days. When what I and what I recommend for this is just create some benchmarks. You know, if it's Monday, right? Say, hey, can I, I don't know if I can get this to you in the time frame you want, but how about if we check in on Thursday and I'll give you an update as to where that does that work for you? And you just do these little benchmark check-ins so that you're not left holding the bag, wondering and waiting. Is this even on Skip's priority list? And so I think you can see how the three of those work together. Yeah. around specificity and directness and candor and, and immediacy and promptness. Yeah. Um, but there's so much stuff that's going on in working around. People are avoiding conversations. They're procrastinating on getting stuff done and following up. I have uh, this program I've launched called Your Empowered Employee Playbook, which, yeah. which brings out all the ideas and suggestions that employees have been either putting forth or they're just laying dormant and they're afraid to suggest it because they don't think it's going to go anywhere because they've got this sense of learned helplessness. I've made these suggestions in the past and it seems like somebody cares, but nothing ever happens to it. And they go into this black hole. Yeah. And so the Empowered Employee Playbook is to you know, blow up the black hole and actually move these initiatives forward. And there's so many ideas that just get lost that everybody sort of has the best of intentions but they never go anywhere. And what I've found in talking to my clients about this in setting up this playbook program, because I was trying to do some you know, client research, um, there's a couple of reasons why this happens. So you get some, you get an idea from an employee, seem like it's a good idea, maybe we should do it. Uh, but you're sort of conflicted because uh, if you say yes, you now have this mindset, well, if I say yes to something, they may now, want something else, right? <laughs> and so it's just going to open up a whole Pandora's box of other stuff I don't want to have to deal with because they're just, I'm, I'm teaching them to bring me ideas and they're going to want me to do something about it. So I'm somewhat reluctant to say yes and open this up. But I don't want to say no because if I say no, then I'm rejecting them, right? So, now you got this yet, so you got this conflict of don't want to say yes, really don't want to say no. So what happens when we have that cognitive dissonance? Do nothing. Nothing. We do nothing, right? <laughs> <laughs> and best of intention, I have, I have this one client, a good client of mine, actually. We worked together on this for three years now. When I first met him three years ago, he had this Excel spreadsheet with this list of ideas that came from employees over the last four or five years before we met. Right. And <laughs> nothing was ever done with this stuff. Um, he never even got back to people on it. He just, so, he just so how do you release it. that, though? Because it's... You coming in as an outsider, you don't control their budget spend and their action plans and their quarterly mm -hmm. plans. How, how do you make that stuff happen? Well, it's not necessarily about making that stuff happen. It's just about bringing closure to it. So, so and this is what the employee playbook, uh, Empower Employee Playbook does. It gives, it breaks through that yes, no conundrum and gives you a way to respond that makes sense for you and will uh, move things forward. I don't care if you implement these ideas as an employee. I just want closure. Can we do it? 
are we not going to do this? Uh Did you even consider what I said? So that's all you want. So there's four answers in the Empowered Employee Playbook. One, yes, we can do this. We should have done it and we'll do it by date. And I want your help implementing. Second answer is we should implement this, but the timing's not right. Let's revisit this in three weeks or three months. And I give you permission to hold me accountable and come back in three weeks or three months, mm-hmm. whatever that time period is, and ask me about it again. And we'll talk about it and see if the timing's better. The third is I like the concept, but I need more information. It's too vague. Sell me on it. Give me a business case why we should really do this. Give me more substance and detail. Or four, no, we can't do this. We're not going to do this. We're never going to do this in this company. And here's why. And you give a real business case, not just a blow up. It's not in the budget. We tried it 10 years ago. It didn't work. I want a real business case response. If you tell people no in that way, they'll be fine. It's just a matter that it was considered. It showed that you valued my input. And at least I understand there's a reason why it's not going to work here. And that's okay. The problem with most of this stuff is it goes into a black hole and nobody ever hears anything about them again. And so the idea of the Empower Employee Playbook is to bring closure to this stuff and move the low-hanging fruit forward because there's a lot of low-hanging fruit there, stuff that's easy to implement that is just hanging around that people just forget about. And so if we can just chip away at this in 90, 90 days, start moving some of these things forward, people feel empowered, they feel like they're being listened to and they're considered. And then we have a laundry list of other stuff that we can prioritize and work towards over the next next 90 days or 180 days and it gives us it puts a systematic process in place i love that yeah and i'm, I'm guessing that, that conundrum sorry yeah i'm guessing that yeah. business owners love that having a, a timeline for one thing 90 day plan brilliant idea uh and a system as you say so a structure to things because i mentioned employee engagement but just general consulting doing stuff is very open-ended whereas you're providing a, a clear beginning and an ending and a process is, am I right in thinking that they like that? Yes. Cause the challenge with most consultants is it's an open-ended thing. No, you're just going to go in there and you know move things around or, or whatever, but there's no, no clear outcome or objective that's defined in, in many situations. And so I, I try to get, go back to my book, the seven deadly communication sins and the lack of specificity and directness and candor. That's part of my brand, right? So yeah, this can, what we're going to do is going to be very specific. It's going to be very direct and candid, and we're not going to procrastinate. It's going to be immediate, right? And prompt. We're going to chip through this stuff, um, and and let's just get some things done. Let's or, you know, because there's so much stuff that you're thinking about or you're working on that you want to do that you don't because well maybe you think you have to take it on. Well, what if you delegate it to the person who suggested it? Yeah, <laughs> and they would love let's that. Let them implement it, right? So give them the parameters, give them a little bit of a budget if it's necessary. It's not going to be, you know, millions of dollars or thousands. It'll be a couple hundred bucks probably is all you need. There's this one, one client that really brought this home for me is five or six years ago. I was doing sort of a focus group for feedback, kind of like you've probably done. And at the end of the session, I ask a question. Uh, I give people sticky notes and I say, if, if you could wish for one thing, to be different or better in your work environment, what would it be? And I, I collect that. all these wishes. Yeah. And this one woman in the session was really struggling to write something down, but I knew she she had something that was going on. And so I pushed her on it and she said, no, you know, I've been asking for this for years. It's never going to happen. And I said, well, Randy, if 
if there's ever a chance now, this is <laughs> this, <laughs> this, this is might it. be your last chance. Let's let's go for it. I can't promise, but let me let me know. So she's there was like ten other people in the room because it was a focus group of about eleven employees, and she said, "Well, I've been asking for a new desk chair for six years." Oh wow! And when she said this, everybody in the room laughed. And they weren't laughing at her. They were laughing with her because they had heard about Randy's desk chair every day for the last six years. And she had asked at her performance review time for a new desk chair. And all of her previous bosses would just give her lip service and it never happened. One went so far as saying, well, we really can't just give you a desk chair. Why don't you go survey the rest of the staff and see what type of chairs they want? And maybe we can put a big budget together and we'll get you a chair. She said, screw that. I'm not doing that because you're dumping this project on me all i want is one desk here i don't care about everybody else so she she just gave up so after this I collected all this stuff and i go down to my my client who was the chief information officer for a large city that i was doing work with and she said well i don't know what, what's going on but let's go look at randy's chair and this is after everybody left it was like 5 30 or something in the afternoon we went down and went to Randy's workstation and she sat in Randy's chair and she looked up at me and said, this chair is unsittable. <laughs> she like had to balance on it all day long. She did data entry all day long as part of the IT and she's balancing all day long. She had a bad back. She was seeing a chiropractor every week. <laughs> and so I got Randy a desk chair for 200 bucks or whatever. <laughs> but what did that do to morale for six years of everybody knowing that nobody cares about this one employee. And what if I have an issue? They're not going to care about me either. Right. Um, and there's all this little stuff that goes on that. Gets what would you do without that CIO? If that CIO wasn't there, would they've had six years of an opportunity to fix that chair situation. They didn't. Did you turn up and have the right person in the right place to be able to make that change? Or did you need to convince well, them? Uh, no, well, what it was is that the CIO, it was a new CIO. So she wanted to get the feedback from her. Her, her new staff uh, that yes. she had just taken over. Um, she wanted to make change in, in the environment and, and get off on the right foot and start. So, you know, it, it, it worked out. But yeah. You know, the previous CIO would not have probably even thought about bringing me in. Yeah. Right. And the status quo would have just perpetuated. So ideal type of client, ideal person buying the service. You had the stars aligned there. How do you find more of those sort of ideal clients and how do you go about doing that? <laughs> Uh, usually it's referrals. Usually it's, it's podcasts with, uh, just talking to people and getting the message out. Uh, you know, I do a lot of, uh, get some good referrals from, from existing clients and, um, been doing some work on LinkedIn people have been finding me there as well. But, uh, I have a pretty strong network in my region. So I, I work in, you know, do a lot of work locally, actually, you know, through the magic of the interwebs, I got a client three years ago in New Zealand. So, uh, they tracked me down. So, you know, yeah. just like everything else, you have to have multiple points of entry yeah, you know, okay. to, to keep things flowing. So, but uh, mostly referrals, a little bit of online, social media stuff always brings, yeah. brings somebody every now and then. Just a good client base that's that open to referrals, referring me. Uh, th- there is one question I get asked a lot myself and I, you know, I have my thoughts on it, but it's consultants who go into clients, to businesses and they're having troubles convincing the client to take action and so on. There are lots of different ways. One is 
just try and find better clients because I think in some cases people choose the type of client that they get, i.e. the wrong sort. I think you probably set yourself up and positioned yourself in the way that you're probably more likely to get the kinds of clients you want and there's less convincing to do. But what's your advice for other consultants who need to convince or work with business leaders to take action? That's, that's, that's a challenging question because, again, I go back to my, my communication approach. You know, it's, it's specific, it's direct and candid, uh, and it's, if it's not a fit, it's time to move on. And so I think you really have to be clear on what your objective is and what your outcome is and what you can do for people. And do you want it or not? I have more clients tell me, or pro- prospective clients tell me, you know, I'm not skeptical that you can help me. I'm skeptical that I want to do the work. You know, um, are you, I'm, I'm assuming you're familiar with Pat Lencioni, the five dysfunctions of a team. Uh, no, T- talk us through it. So uh, don't, don't put me on the spot with his five dysfunctions of a team. He's got, <laughs> yeah. this, he's got this pyramid of, of the things that teams are, are challenged with. And basically it starts with trust, right? Trust and um conflict avoidance and things like that sure. right? and, and accountability I forget the five levels but his book is, is really great I highly recommend it five dysfunctions of a team um, and the book is a parable he tells a story about an organization that's struggling and, and how he works through it uh, through this this parable story of a company um, but he's got a, a prelude you know prologue to the book and he talks about doing this type of work and I love the quote from the book he says this work is heavy lifting and if you're an organizational leader that wants to do this work, you have to be ready for some heavy lifting. Mm. And not everybody's ready. You're in the right place to do that level of work. Um, and that's the expectation I have to have. You know, a lot of, and you've probably seen this too, a lot of business owners um, expect you to come in and fix their people. Uh, and I don't fix anybody's people unless that individual is part of the fixing, you know, they're going to be around the conference room table, sitting in the room with their employees as a peer working on themselves as much as their employees are working on them. And it's going to be a collaborative effort. And you're not going to sit in your, in your, you know, what I call the isolation chamber, the business owner's isolation chamber, (laughs) waiting for your people to get fixed. You have to be part of the solution. Um, And, you know, it takes the right type of, business owner to, to be there. But typically by time somebody comes to me and goes through the, through the vetting process or the finding me process, they're only looking for me when they're at a place where they, they realize they need, need to do something different or better. I think you had a briefing video that people mm-hmm. can watch and then they book a call. So the yes. understanding of what you offer is that right? Yeah, exactly. So, so if somebody schedules a call with me, Either that that will lead them into the call, or if they've come to me through a different avenue, I will send them that video to watch to prepare okay. for the call. What does it cover? It basically covers the basic challenges and issues that I typically work with fixing, which are the basic stuff we talked about. Um, it talks about the whole problem with what I call the business owner's isolation chamber and and the black hole of ideas that get stuck and why your employees are acting this way, um, and we can fix that by going through this process. And so it, it really sets sets the tone that there is a way through to the other side of what you're experiencing, uh, just as long as you are open to being part of the process and not expecting me to fix them. 
I think that's genius. So for people listening to this, that's such a great idea. It's educating, it's pre-selling. So for the, the people who are saying that they are struggling to convince business leaders, business owners to take action when they recommend certain things, well, you can shut the gate once the horse is bolted or you can educate people before they come into that process. We, we all struggle with quantity versus quality of business prospects, right? Sure. Um, and we waste an awful lot of time with low quality prospects, I, I believe. Um, so I would rather to trim that down, you know, and have more high quality people come to me because it saves me time. They're farther down the, uh, the, the process of coming on board um, to solving their problems. But I think depending on where you're at in your business life cycle and, and where you're at in building your practice, you sort of have to go through that process right? And learn how to talk to those people and how to weed them out and filter, filter them out. Um, so it's, it's an education process. I think everybody sort of has to come through on their own. You know, I think you can get advice and guidance from some people, but um, in coaching for it, but as, as another, uh, you know, I do a lot of speaking keynote speeches and, uh, and workshops and stuff. And my professional speaking coach, you know, is a big, uh, is a big proponent of stage time, right? Uh, stand-up comics. You know, the only way a stand-up comic gets better is stage time. You got to be in front of an audience on stage, right? Good thing, yeah. It's the same thing. You know, the only way you get better at filtering out, you know, the the good prospects from the bad prospects is stage time. It's having the conversation. What works for you? What do they say that you, know, you want to avoid next time? And it's just an iterative process that you have to be open to to going through and just just just, just play with it. So. You know, I'm sure there's ways to accelerate it. Um, I'm not smart enough to figure out. <laughs> if I did, I would have figured it out 10, 15 years ago. <laughs> but, I but I think I'm at a really good place now. Yeah. We're coming towards the end of our time, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how the, your area of work, I don't want to call it employee engagement if that's not what it is, but bringing workforces up to the next level and, and getting things humming along and, and better productivity and ROI, all that kind of stuff. But has any of that changed with the whole pandemic and moved to remote work, et cetera? Has any of that impacted how you would either make changes in businesses and deliver your work? Well, obviously the delivery is a little more virtual now than it's than sure. it was in the past. Although, you know, I did the whole program with New Zealand virtually from, from New York. Wow. Um, and so that's, that started me doing zoom from you know, half halfway around the world. Uh, it's, it's just exacerbated now and is, you know, it, it's ubiquitous. It's, 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 it's all we do now, you know? Yeah. Um, so the last time I was on site was August. I actually got lucky to go to Brooklyn, um, New York for a client project where we did two days on site. Um, so that's, but other than that, it was March. The last time I was in front of a, a live audience. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's going to be, you know, virtual. I think people are much, you know, if I had suggested doing virtual work, I think, you know, with somebody down the street from me or in Brooklyn two yeah. hours away before COVID, they would have, and there's no, we need, we need you on site. So I think people are more open yeah. to it now. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think this environment reinforces the whole, my whole concept of communication because you need to be more specific. You need to be more direct. You need to be more consistent. Responsiveness is, is, is huge today. So um, the team dynamic, you know, is something that I'm still working with. How can we create high performance teams in a remote work environment uh, and learning more of, of how to make that work? Um, 
you just have to really up well up the level of engagement and yeah. the interaction and you can't if somebody is you know is off working uh, working home remotely by themselves you can't you know let them stray for two weeks you've got to you got to be on a call with them a couple of times a week just checking in with them seeing how they're doing you know what resources do they need what are they you know what you gotta just you gotta up level your your engagement interaction with them just to make them feel important um and and you know make excuses for for having the check-ins more than more than you would normally so much technology available these days, whether it is a phone call or a Zoom call or these pulse surveys or Slack, you know, messaging, all kinds of things. Yeah, there's no excuse for not improving or keeping things flowing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, some people are more adept at it yeah. than others. Yeah. And more comfortable with it than others. And I think it's, that's the other challenge too is, you know, you've got to really know your team. You know, yes. who who are the best people who are, just self-starters, they, they, they can go on their own. They can just check in with you when, you know, when they do and everything is good and you, other people need a little more handholding. And so it's even more important as organizational leaders that you, you really get connected to your people, what they need from you. And uh, yeah, that's more important than ever. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, Skip, we've covered so much stuff. You shared so much great advice. I really appreciate that. Firstly, where can people find your book? And then secondly, if people want to refer clients to you or if they're in a business and they would like some help bringing their team up to the next level, what should they do next? Two things. One, uh, if they want to learn more about my book, they can go to 7deadliestcommunicationsins.com. And that's the webpage for the book. It's got all the details on it. They can purchase it directly there. Um and seven is either the numeral or the word seven. I got both the, the web addresses Nicely covered. The, yep. the cover cover both, and and then my main website is yourchampionshipcompany.com, and I've got resources there, a blog, video trainings, and uh, you can see me live speaking on stages for the keynote speeches I do and things like that. So yourchampionshipcompany.com. Perfect. So if you're listening to this on the go, check the show notes because both links will be there available for you. And also, as I'm constantly telling clients or in the coaching programs and so on, if you're in a business that's parallel but not competing with Skip's business and you have clients that could benefit from his services, get in touch, have a chat. Perhaps you can put some content together and vice versa. Who knows, Skip might have recruitment clients or health and safety work going on that he doesn't necessarily deliver. So I'm constantly suggesting people consider that. Absolutely. I, I love collaborating with other people and just seeing what other people are doing, uh, the creative juices flowing. And, 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 you know, I think two heads are always better than one. And if we can support each other on the journey, I'm all open to it. So get Perfect. in touch. Brilliant. Well, Skip, thank you very much for your time. People I'm, will absolutely enjoy this for sure. So thank you for sharing all your insights and thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Ben. Thanks for joining us today on A Better HR Business, the podcast that explores the world of HR consulting and HR tech businesses. For show notes and downloads, go to www.getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. That's getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. Remember to subscribe and share the show with any friends who are busy growing a HR business. Thanks and see you next time.